This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Welcome to another edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. I am Bill Goodnight, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. We are proud today to present this special edition podcast, the American Journal of Perinatology Editor's Wrap-Up of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine Annual Meeting, the Pregnancy Meeting. This meeting was held in San Diego, California from February 2nd through February 7th, 2015. The Pregnancy Meeting is the annual scientific meeting for the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine in which postgraduate courses and special interest groups provide updates on all facets of care for high-risk pregnancies. In addition, the highlight for the meeting remains the presentation of original research in oral and poster presentation sessions. In this podcast, editors from the American Journal of Perinatology share their insights from the meeting and review some of the notable abstracts. With us today are Dr. George Sadi. Dr. Alan Tita, and Dr. Chris Robinson. Dr. George Sade is the Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Perinatology. He is a professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston and is the Chief of Obstetrics and Maternal Fetal Medicine and the Director of the Perinatal Research Division. Dr. Alan Tita, MD, PhD, is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Chris Robinson is an Associate Professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in maternal fetal medicine. Welcome editorial board members. First up today we have Dr. Alan Tita. The first abstract that he's going to discuss is entitled Autism Spectrum Disorder and Induced Augmented Labor Epidemiologic Analysis of Utah Cohort. This was presented as an oral plenary by Dr. Aaron Clark from the University of Utah. Dr. Tita. Thank you. To evaluate whether induced or augmented labor increases the likelihood of autism spectrum disorder, these investigators implemented a case control study using Utah population-based databases. They found and concluded that labor induction or augmentation or the combination of both did not increase the odds of having an autism spectrum disorder. I think we'd all agree this is a hot topic across the scientific as well as lay literature. Dr. Tita, what were some of your take-homes from this study? One, a very uh, large population database involving a captive Utah population. Two, really just the fact that it reassures us about a very common obstetric practice that actually is useful for women and babies. It seems like to me, too, I remember from the Utah referral network, they had a very strong referral network where they could capture these cases and really define these cases very well. That's true. This is a great paper, and lab somebody, they did this analysis. But you said it's a hot topic, obviously, because of the previous study that showed some association and the fear that generated. Now that we have these two studies, which one do you think is the more appropriate one, or what is the overall conclusion now that we have two conflicting studies? 
Well, I think it would be great to see the final paper out of the current study to better evaluate the methods used. But the fact that we have what seems to be a carefully designed study, a very large sample size, that reassures us about this, I think, I think is very encouraging, even if the findings are conflicting, because that at least reduces the likelihood that there is actually something real between oxytocin use and autism. Yeah, I agree with that. There was issues with the previous analysis, not from this group, from another group that was published in the past year or so, where the confounders were not really controlled for adequately. The definitions of the different confounders was not very clear, and the induction versus augmentation was not very clear. So I really like this analysis. And as you said, if there's conflicting analyses, then we can be reassured that the association may not be a true association. I think I would echo what Chris said. I think their case selection is going to be very robust from this study. They used the Utah Registry of Autism and Developmental Disabilities where they selected their cases, and I think that will go a long way into defining these cases a little bit better. I agree, Bill. I think the key thing here is understanding the exact diagnosis that we are dealing with because of autism spectrum and including such a wide variety of outcomes associated, it is important to understand exactly how those cases are classified and that they've been evaluated rigorously. And this Utah cohort appears to have, because of the state involvement in ascertainment and the services offered to these children, it does have the ability to really understand where this population is and really to nail down the confounders so that you can have proper control and understanding of potential association if one exists. Yeah, the other reassuring finding, I think, is really just simply the fact that they had a 1 in 75 prevalence rate, and that's what one would typically expect with careful evaluation of autism. And I think that's a frequent enough both outcome as well as the exposure in this cohort that I think this would not suffer from type 2 error and again, I think is reassuring. I'm awaiting the papers that I'll be able to use to help reassure patients in the clinical setting. Any last thoughts on this abstract? Other than I'm so glad this was done and presented and can't wait for the publication. Dr. Tita also found another oral presentation in that same plenary session uh, to be interesting. Dr. Tita is going to discuss the effect of expanded midwifery and hospital services on primary cesarean delivery rates that was presented by Melissa Rosenstein from the University of California in San Francisco. Uh, yes. So these investigators examined the effect of changing the labor and delivery care system for privately insured women from a fully private practice care model to a 24-hour obstetrician midwife hospitalist model at a single community center in California. They use the before and after time cohort design. They found a significant reduction in cesarean delivery rate from 32 to 25% in nulliparous term singleton women with cephalic presenting pregnancies. And they also reported an increase in the VBAC rate from 13 to 23%. They then conclude that adopting this model could have a significant impact on cesarean delivery and VBAC rate. This was a very interesting presentation from several aspects. I think we all recognize that the practice of obstetrics is moving toward 
a laborist type model and also a collaborative model where we have not only the private practitioner but the private practitioner who is collaborating maybe with a person who is specifically taking on the job of being available for 24-hour-7 coverage of labor and delivery. It opens up a lot of questions. We see that this model had a significant impact on cesarean delivery rates. And the questions remain, what do you think are the underlying reasons for this? Is it that the model, as it's introduced, has it placed a different perspective in the mind of the obstetrician or the midwife? Or is this collaborative model uh, in some way changing practice within their labor and delivery suite? My questions relate to why did this decrease? Did it really decrease because they changed the model? Or did it decrease because these were different providers that now were in charge or because whoever was taking care of these patients knew that there was some observation. Somebody was watching these numbers or looking after these numbers. And this rate of 32% in nulliparous women at term with singleton gestation was really high in these patients to start with. So a little bit of effect from all of these could have dropped this not just the model of practice. My other question is, I don't recall they ever presented the neonatal outcomes, did they? I think you're right. I don't recall seeing neonatal outcomes or other hard outcomes. I mean, you could decrease cesarean delivery rates by not doing the C-section when it's indicated, but then you're going to increase the adverse neonatal outcomes. So any effect on a cesarean delivery rate or analysis of cesarean delivery rate must have neonatal outcomes analyzed at the same time. My concern is, are we attributing to the model something that would have been because of something else? I don't want to say Hawthorne effect, but something similar to a Hawthorne effect. We're changing the providers maybe for this model, and there is scrutiny of these cesareans. So other people have shown that if you scrutinize cesareans and you provide people with their C-section rates compared to the other providers and you, you, the providers know that their cases are reviewed, you could change cesarean delivery rate. And then the other one is whether neonatal outcomes are not changed by, by decreasing the cesarean delivery rate. Thanks, George. I share those concerns. I think while this is a very, depending on who is looking at it, a politically correct study, the findings really look very appealing. I think for many of those reasons that you cite, it is important to have some pause and look fully at the final report and then also look at additional studies that address some of those concerns that we raised. I think the other thing is if you look at, take the cesarean out of the question, but look at the vaginal birth after cesarean rate. You had a really significant increase in the trial of labor after cesarean. And so it would also be interesting to understand exactly what the interventions were that led to. Is it the model or is it something about the way consent or was there training that went into uh, language used with counseling for vaginal birth after cesarean? I had two parts on that study that, that sort of hit at some of these that I thought were interesting. One, the authors actually described this as a limitation, is the very long time that they analyzed this study from 2005 until the current time. I think we've seen significant published publications regarding how long labor should be and the, the resurgence back towards trial of labor after VBAC. So practice patterns 
definitely change over that time. So there, there certainly can be those biases there. They obviously attempted to control for that Hawthorne effect why they, where they described that these, most of the patients that were in the hospitalist group were in these privately insured patients. And the publicly insured patients, their model of care didn't change. And there was no difference in the outcomes. The VBAC rate actually went down, and the C-section rate didn't change in that publicly insured group. So some bleed over by hospital policy or awareness or Hawthorne effect that they were understanding they were being studied was may have some degree of control by looking at those two patient populations. I find it very compelling that this model had such an effect on VBAC rates and C-section, but I agree with the thoughts here that this doesn't exactly tell us what it was, and I'd very much be interested to looking at what were the indications for C-sections, what were the links of labor, the reasons for the increase in trial of labor after C-sections. I think there may be a lot of other little factors that may not be related to just the hospitalist. The other thing, Bill, is if you look at the specific time point at which they broke the data for the pre-change to the post-change intervention with the intervention occurring in 2010, that would have been exactly the same time that the Consortium on Safe Labor published mm -hmm. their new labor curves and recommendations for management of labors in nulliparous and multiparous patients. And so we know there would have been also a change occurring in the way we manage labor at about the same time that they began to study and implement this model. I think it's also important to call attention to the fact that there was another study presented at the same meeting that did not find similar results, also evaluating a laborist uh, model. Kudos to this group for demonstrating such changes, and I, like it sounds like all the rest of us, am anxiously awaiting the manuscript to see if we can tease out a little bit more insight into exactly what the factor was that had these changes and to ensure that there were no adverse outcomes associated with it. Dr. Sadi, I know you found abstract 151, screening for fetal growth restriction using universal third trimester ultrasonography a prospective cohort study of 3,977 nulliparous women to be interesting. This was presented by Gordon Smith from Cambridge University. Dr. Sadi, love to hear your thoughts. One of the main reasons I really wanted to see this abstract and what I would like to highlight it is that this is, as far as I can tell, this is the first analysis from this large study in the UK called the Pregnancy Outcome Prediction Study, which is a, a large prospective cohort of unselected nulliparous women with singleton gestation that they followed throughout pregnancy. They had ultrasound examinations, they had the biospecimen collection and outcome ascertainment, which is really a very, very unique study. We have a similar study that we finished here in the United States, the new mom-to-be study or the nulliparous, which was larger, 10,000 women. But this is the study that finished before. And the other reason I like this abstract is because the question always comes up. Pretty much now everybody is tested on at least one ultrasound during pregnancy, and we typically say between 18 and 22 weeks or somewhere around to get the anatomy and the dating. But now the question is, should we have another ultrasound later in the third trimester to screen or detect fetal growth restriction? And this study somewhat answers this question. And their primary aim was to see if that 
ultrasound in the third trimester is a good screen for growth restriction. And the outcome is not only growth restriction as much as uh, morbidity or adverse outcomes from growth restriction. So they had close to 4,000 women who had ultrasound between 20 weeks, 28 weeks, and then 36 weeks if they were still pregnant at that time. And these were research ultrasounds, so they did not tell the provider or the patient the results, so they could not have interfered with the management of pregnancy. And what they found is, if you look at estimated fetal weight below the 10th percentile at the last ultrasound, they had 14% of their patient had an estimated fetal weight below the 10th percentile. And then they looked at those that had this ultrasound, estimated fetal weight below the 10th percentile. They divided them into those that had a neonatal morbidity and those that did not have neonatal morbidity. And they found, interestingly, that there was only one parameter that was associated with neonatal morbidity in these infants, and that was the rate of growth of the abdominal circumference when they took the 20-week as a baseline and then the last ultrasound as the next one to calculate the growth. And those infants where they had their abdominal circumference growth rate in the lower decile in the lower 10th percentile were at the highest risk of adverse outcomes. And if they had SGA, if their estimated fetal weight was less than the 10th percentile, but their growth, the growth of the abdominal circumference was normal, then these babies did not have any adverse outcomes. So in a sense, that tells us that ultrasound in the third trimester may be a good screen for adverse outcomes from fetal growth restriction but also tells us that it's not what we typically look for in an ultrasound that is the good screen. It's the growth rate, which means that we have to have another ultrasound at 20 weeks, which now is pretty standard. But if we don't have that, then it's not going to be a good screen. One of my clinical challenges is trying to figure out which baby less than whatever definition we use for growth restriction is really the one at risk and that I need to intervene for and test and deliver early. And I think this may shed a little bit more light or give us a little more insight into that. And I know there are other papers looking at growth velocities as a measure of predicting morbidity from fetal growth restriction. And so I found this to be another little piece of evidence that looking at growth velocities more so than just an absolute percent number for fetal growth restriction helps me to determine which babies I think really are truly at risk. This is really an interesting study and one that I really did not pay attention to. And a thought that comes to mind is the applicability to our U.S. population with respect to the number of ultrasounds that patients often get after 20 weeks. I think especially when obesity is taken into consideration, patients tend to get a lot more ultrasound. So is this something that could change practice here, considering that patients already get so many ultrasounds? I think so. I mean, like, if you remember, they had 20 weeks, 28 weeks, 36 weeks. So it was between the 20 and the last ultrasound, which is most more than likely the 36 weeks ultrasound. So in a sense, the 28 weeks, ultrasound did not really contribute much. So to me, yeah, that could change. That could mean if, if I want to do one more ultrasound during pregnancy other than the 20 weeks, then you have to leave it till 36 weeks or close to 36 weeks. Yeah. Now, these were not at-risk patients. They're unselected. I mean, some of them could have had risk factors, but they were yeah. unselected. So, so that may not apply specifically to 
hypertensive patients or diabetics or whatever else. But this is yeah. And did they analyze separately to look at whether this impact continued to exist after taking out, for example, patients that would have been identified because they had the ultrasound in the third trimester for clinical reasons? I didn't see that, but that would be something to look for in the publication. My understanding is it's in press in Lancet. I looked and it's not yet online. That would be my question too, is I find the growth velocity interesting in terms of predicting what to do with that one that winds up small, but I'm not sure that's the same as saying that the 36-week ultrasound is a sensitive and specific with good positive and negative predictive value for predicting or for finding growth restriction in a population-based screening strategy. I, I don't have enough data from this abstract to say that a 36-week and an otherwise uncomplicated patient with normal blood pressure and normal maternal weight gain and normal fundal height, that added, the cost of that added ultrasound would make a difference. I think the paper hopefully will shed light on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean this was not a predictive analysis. This was just to see the associations and the odds ratio. And prediction is always tougher. Even if your odds ratio are high and the association is highly significant, doesn't mean that the prediction will be significant. Looking forward to that manuscript as well. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Join us next week when we continue our roundtable discussion on highlights from the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine 2015 annual meeting, the pregnancy meeting. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org.